listeners, this is Talking Frontiers. I'm your host, Riju Ray, Associate Professor of History at Jindal School of Journalism and Communication. In this podcast, we explore histories, ethnographies, and cultural articulations of spaces understood as frontiers, borderlands, fringes, and margins. In this series of episodes, we will have conversations, exchange ideas and stories by showcasing the rich scholarship and literature on the erstwhile northeastern frontier of British India. Geographically, this frontier included not only the seven states that make up northeast of India today, but also parts of Bangladesh and Myanmar. In this episode, we talk to Kishalai Bhattacharji, Dean of Jindal School of Journalism and Communication. Professor Bhattacharji spent many years as a journalist reporting on the northeastern states of India. He has authored several books, and today we will focus our conversation on his latest book, Where the Madness Lies, Citizen Accounts of Identity and Nationalism. Welcome, Professor. Thank you, Riju. I want to begin by saying that the breadth of your new book, Where the Madness Lies, is what is most striking. The vignettes that cover themes of nationalism, citizenship, and nation provide readers with a very large temporal and spatial scope. I want to ask you a question you have raised in your prologue, a question that frames the book thematically and conceptually. Is nation a concept that sustains a citizen, providing him or her with a secure base from which to view the world, or does it restrict their freedom? I think, uh, you know, yeah, this is a question that I raise. I don't have an answer to it, uh, which is, I have something in my head, but I can't necessarily, that, that necessarily may not be the only answer, but I think it does both. It, uh, the nation as we understand today, uh, does provide a sense of, security because uh, and just to just to kind of illustrate that uh, if we look at the the unending number of uh, refugees in flight today it gives you a sense of where what 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 security I'm talking about <clears throat> and that's what the nation does but that's a little amorphous on one hand and um, it, it is also like just like a piece of paper, really, because you know no one has really seen the nation, uh, and no one has really flown over the entire vast nation and seen every part of the country. So they don't. So if so, in, in this book, I have these questionnaire and I ask people that, have you seen India? What is what is India for you? And they don't have a sense of it, but they still have an idea that that is where they belong. Um, but it also restricts uh, their freedom in many ways. And where probably it can lead, and I didn't, didn't discuss this in this book, is that what do you do when you don't want to be part of this nation? Mm-hmm. You know, because I think the first right of the citizen is to secede. And that is a right that a citizen actually has. And uh, but every time groups of people or someone have expressed even that idea of secession that is considered to be anti-national, and that I think there is a contradiction there. That I am supposed to believe and follow 
a set of rules and norms and not question it. So right. that's where the restriction of freedom, I think, comes. Even freedom to even think beyond what has been given to me by birth. Right. This actually brings me to the second question. The book reminds us that the word citizen itself comes from uh, the word city. The city as a unit of governance or as a locale of uh, belonging that cuts across class, community, caste claims has increasingly been studied by scholars. Can you expand on this sort of relationship between the uh, idea of citizenship and city as a space of belonging? And can you tell us why you chose the five cities in the book that you chose? Well, the first uh, part is that I have always been, I've, it's always fascinated me that, you know, while we talk about citizenship in a legal, more clerical uh, definition, but, you know, there would have been another role that the inhabitant of a city has, the obligation that the inhabitant has towards uh, this spatial um, relationship with wherever she or he is living, is there an obligation or is there no obligation? And I have always gone back to actually the Indus Valley civilization to find uh, leads because, you know, it's also because there's so much, it's shrouded in so much of unknown that mm -hmm. it kind of fascinates you about that civilization, which uh, was extremely advanced um, and all we know is that about the little archaeological finds that we have of roads at right angles, the great granary, the great drainage system. We don't know anything much about beyond that. We, um, we there is there, so what do the citizens? It seems to us the impression that we get, gather from whatever one has read or heard about these cities is that the that there was a very healthy relationship between the city and the inhabitant okay uh, which means and the city of course is not a human being so you, so the so the human so which means the inhabitants created or had some kind of a system in which they in which the city flowered blossomed prospered but you know that is still in the realm of the unknown mm -hmm. um, as you know, we go through this civilizational history of the Indian subcontinent. There are instances or of many such uh, cities where, you know, those places prospered, flourished, and they didn't flourish for nothing. They flourished because of the people there. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we are in a situation where the inhabitants are at loggerheads with the state. So the inhabitants feel that their rights are being denied by the state. And the state uh, either is too callous or also can put the put it on the blame on the citizens that you know that you do not fulfill an obligation. So the social contract between the state and the citizens, there seems to be a huge um, friction and tension. I wanted to uh, catch that tension. Uh, and I randomly selected the five cities. But even when I say I randomly selected I think that there was a, some kind of a subconscious um, selection criteria. My selection criteria was based primarily on places where I have not reported from. Okay. 
okay, except for Guwahati. Yeah. All the other places I have not reported from. And so I wanted so wanted to be almo- almost like a neutral observer out there. Um, Jalandhar uh, has one of the highest Dalit population. So I wanted to see it from, uh, and, and each of these cities I have, uh, I have, um, the voice is from the margins. I mean, margin is a very problematic word, but I'm using it for the lack of any other word that comes coming to my mind, but the othering. Mm-hmm. So the other, so the other in Jalandhar is, though though they are in a huge uh, population, but it's still othered. So I wanted to st- look at Jalandhar. Mm-hmm. Because Jalandhar, again, these are, uh, why I'm saying it's it's random and yet there is a thought. Uh, as a city also, it fascinates me. It was uh, at the heart of the Buddhist civilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a history to Jalandhar. It was also a city that got completely emptied out during partition. And you know, you had almost the entire Sial court come to uh, Jalandhar, and entire Jalandhar go there. Um, and then you have this Dalit uh, Sikh population there. Um, I st- wanted to study cities of how the cities are spatially divided um, in the basis of caste, okay, or religion. And most Indian cities are. Mm-hmm. Benares, we keep kind of perpetrating the stereotype that is the oldest living city um, in the world. I think, you know, there are other cities like Madurai also, who, which has a continuous um, living history. Uh, but Benares, again, uh, posited an interesting um, facet, which was not there anywhere else, where the higher caste and the lower caste both live along the river. Because in other places, it is only the other castes that live along the river, the higher castes live inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I saw the tried to see the city through um, through a dome. Uh, you know, people who work in the cremation grounds. Um, also, it is a city of Shiv. Uh, you know, Shiva, um, mm-hmm. the Indian god, who actually spends a lot of time in the cremation ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a tension out there in the whole. In, in even the even the the building or the uh, of Shiva, the iconography uh, of Shiva. Shiva does not actually fit into the uh, idea of the Hindu god. He is more like a tribal god. Okay, he comes from the hills. Um, he is the other, mm-hmm. though he is adopted by uh, Benares, and he is he makes Benares, mm-hmm. and Benares is standing on his trident apparently, but um, he is not from Benares. So he is True. the other, okay? Um, so I tried to understand the, each of the, they are inhabitants. Uh, so the Dalits are the inhabitants of Jalandhar, but so they are not really you know, outsiders, but they are outsiders uh, and the insider. So the insider-outsider mm-hmm. conundrum mm-hmm. is something that I wanted to try and see. Then I moved to Hyderabad and I see the city through a temple dancer. Uh, because the Deva Dasi again is becomes the other, uh, and how she, after discovering her family roots, uh, you know, she almost gets excommunicated from her classical dancing tradition uh, peers. Um, and Hampi again uh, mm-hmm. is interesting uh, because it's considered to be the last great Hindu empire, uh, and but it 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 has an extremely rich. Uh, plural 
culture out there and to be able to study that and guwahati again is though it is a familiar ground for me but i think it has not been studied uh, in this respect where you have the the others there are many others out there who are also part of that city but continue to be others mm-hmm. guwahati actually made me think of um you know the idea of a sanctuary city and how it creates the possibility for itself to be a sanctuary city in the way many uh you know cities across north america have declared themselves to be open to undocumented immigrants where both governmental and non-governmental agencies local um you know agencies put in the resources to create a safe space um for uh, you know migrants immigrants and um, both documented um, and undocumented who come who've been coming in um and why do you think you know city like guwahati or any other across northeast and in india don't have the i guess um i don't know possibility to become a sanctuary city i think a sanctuary city uh, the possibility of a sanctuary city is when um the people the inhabitants are not trying to assert their identity um so they out they out here i think you know it has been a very long history of them trying to assert their identity each one of them because of a extremely multilingual multiethnic um the history is not too long people have been moving out there because it was uh, you know it was the international trade route in a sense uh but i also and i also feel that you know a little aspect of northeast term i'm not very comfortable with but which people don't pay attention to is that on the 15th of august 1947 a region that has traded and has uh, maintained relations with the rest of the world for civilization was suddenly landlocked you know you suddenly landlock and a, 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 a entire population uh so and and you are you you basically give them the you know, impose the idea of a nation on them mm-hmm. and they are sup- now supposed to interact uh, and build relationships with people with whom they n- haven't necessarily uh, traded or maintained relationships because you know mm-hmm. uh, this is you know they would go down the r- the, the sea and the river that way um, um so uh, sanctuary i'm not very sure it can do at this point of time because you know they have to be far more confident of their identity and i think that there is a there is there is a huge tension in that so to be able to accommodate others out there is not going to be easy but they have done in many different ways for example that there is a there is a tribe in uh, nagaland which is called the semia now the semia are the semas and the mias oh okay so a new tribe and it's been almost 10 15 years mm-hmm. of the migrant mm-hmm. mias who were working out there who married into the naga society and therefore a different tribe now they may be othered by the other tribes but you know over a period of time so, so i think there is a possibility that that is there 
um, you know, the Maharaja of Manipur had got uh, soldiers from the Silhet Regiment and to fight Burma. And uh, these are the Gurkha Regiment who stayed back in Manipur and became Manipuris in a sense. So I think that, they, you know, I mean, even though there is no official sanctuary, but it has been a sanctuary. And I usually, and I used in the first section how Shillong becomes a sanctuary yes. of people from everywhere. It's unfortunate that the sanctuary did not work out the way it one expected it to mm -hmm. be, but it was for that period of time, it was a sanctuary. Absolutely, yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful way of looking at it, actually. Um, I want to go back to your point about um, language in exploring the complexity of the frontier region. Um, thinking about Assam, the historical formation of Assam in independent India leading up to the CAA and RC debates, do you see a shift in um, concerns for linguistic autonomy and identity since 1947 towards a more religion-based uh, politics? I think both coexisted parallelly. But it, the assertion, the subnational assertions became uh, more strident. Um, and in, with religion, okay, I mean, in the sense that, you know, the religious, I think the religious undertone was there and then it became overtone. But I don't think so religious, religion was ever, uh, you know, if you look from the time of Saidullah uh, and, you know, the accusation that, you know, that grow more food under that campaign, he actually got people from Eastern Bengal and planted them here. Uh, that has been an accusation I mean, uh, the soundscape and the political landscape of Assam right from, you know, pre-independence. Uh, um, <clears throat> breaking away of, or, or giving, taking, taking you know, districts of Silhet and putting it to, the, to Assam and creating a, a chief commissioner uh, ship of Assam. I think even that, uh, even that administrative uh, divisions of the in, that happened during the British times, had religious uh, and linguistic both and I think both coexisted at the same time um, you know the linguistic assertion seems at one point at what at one level to kind of trump over other considerations uh, because of the classical example of the creation of Bangladesh uh, which was anti-Urdu and they wanted and that is why you know it's one of the examples where a nation is created on the basis of language but I'll give you a a, a, a queer example that I confronted in Bodo land in Lower Assam. Now the Bodos uh, consi uh, consider themselves to be one of the earliest inhabitants of Assam. And though till the Assam agitation, all these ethnicities came together, but there was a sense that it was a Hindu upper caste Assamese hegemony, and therefore all these plains tribes wanted to assert their own identity. And Boros were one of the stronger ones. They also wanted to create and carve a different state of theirs right in 1967 called Udayachal, but they later found it to be too Sanskrit sounding, so they called it Bodo land. But I was in my one of my last uh, reporting assignments, uh, and that was 2012 in Bodo land, 
And uh, each year there would be, a, or each wave of violence since 1996, I've seen till 2012, I've covered about five waves of violence each year or each time, you know, um, millions of people would get displaced, millions. Um, you know, hundreds of people would die, get disappear, injured. And a similar thing was happening in 2012. It went on for about a few months. Now, the, for the first 48 hours, I kept saying that two ethnic groups in Lower Assam are clashing because I did not know how, I mean, I was, I was, I felt challenged to be able to describe that if I say it's Boros, then that is ethnicity. And now who are they fighting? The Bengalis, but they are not the Bengalis, they're the Bengali Muslims. So how do you explain one community by ethnicity, another community by religion? Mm -hmm. But in the Sam, uh, it has always been, uh, or in the Northeast, it's always been that the Muslim identity in terms of religion is something that mm -hmm. has to be marked out, has to be you know, highlighted, mm -hmm. because that kind of assumes a different proportion altogether. Mm -hmm. At the same time, so this is about the ethnicities, at the same time, the various armed groups out there actually have if you study it very closely, uh, by the name that they have, you know, the title that they give themselves, they denominate themselves whether they are Christians or Hindus. Okay, so the National right. Democratic, National Socialist, these are all Christian organizations. Right. So there is, I think, that, mm -hmm. that undertone, the religious undertone has always been there. I mean, the entire NSCN movement was a Baptist mission movement, like mm -hmm. uh, the first Christian um, armed movement, which became, which which kind of uh, you know degenerated into a full-fledged terrorist movement. Uh, but the moment it is an Islamic, they call it an Islamist terrorist group. It's easy for people to denominate a group as an Islamist terrorist group, but no one really calls a group a Christian terrorist group. And it was also the same time, I think, yeah. you know, where across the world there was. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, a perception, a sense that you know the Islamist terrorist groups are proliferating. Mm. So the so the Muslim became the enemy number one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, moving to the methods uh, that you've used in writing mm. the book, genealogies, interviews, analysis of historical literature and scholarship, all of these sort of create a dialogue between the past and the present. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the idea behind using these multiple um, you know, methodologies? And second, how important is historical memory um, that's inflected in all of these methods uh, in articulating a sense of identity? So I think historical memory is very important in um, that this articulation. Not so much, in my opinion, as capturing what happened because you know it could all be exaggerated it could all be a figment of someone's imagination and there is no way really to you know say if in my from my maternal side there was a family tree a documented family tree uh for my father's side there was no such thing so it was just based on someone telling me and it could be you know half-baked information that kind of has passed down uh, mm -hmm. So I so so there is a there is a 
it's, 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 it's a, that is a problem of reality. Um, you deal with o- oral uh, history, mm-hmm. and I find it, you know, that you know, it's 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 very really interesting. But there is, you know, no way of mm, actually gathering ev- enough evidence that what we are saying or what they are saying is really true. Um, but that is the only little mm. trace that we can have, or how we can kind of, you know. Uh, why it's important, I think, in the articulation is that those stories, that orality, contributes so much to the uh, to, to to conceptualizing the idea of nationhood, of identity, etc. Now, so all these ideas with which we go through life seems to be uh, constructed on hearsay. Mm-hmm. Like the Boros, mm-hmm. the Dimasas and the Boros both considered to be the earliest inhabitants of Assam. Identity, citizenship, and nationality, which, in my opinion, currently covers most of the challenges of the new India, um, they overlap, but they doesn't necessarily belong to one discipline. And uh, the methodology really is to be able to go beyond disciplines and uh, seek uh, evidence or leads to be able to make myself understand what this is. I want to move on to something a little bit uh, sort of away from the, the book per se, but I want to enter it through a little story you share in the book. Uh, about an evening spent with two young journalists and a cat. I wished to read more about this interaction you had by the Brahmaputra, especially more about what the cat was doing in this entire situation. And um, But on a more serious note, um, what are the experiences you can share about being a journalist and those that your colleagues um, have had in the field in the recent years? You know, when you say recent years, I have not uh, reported from there for for a while. So I'm going to tell you about the time when I was there. It's not going to be very different from now. It's it's probably worsened, but uh, my situation is going to be uh, slightly more unique than you know than uh, a gen, uh, journalist from any other place or from there. Um, and I think that is important. And I mention about this in the book about my own identity. So uh, who am I or what am I? And that is what I ask in the book. I am uh, Bengali. Uh, my, both my parents are ancestrally from what is Eastern Bengal, what was sorry, Eastern Bengal. Um, I grew up in Shillong, which is actually Khasi Hills, but uh, there was a large Bengali population there. Uh, till a point when you know we were considered to be outsiders, so the idea of an outsider came to me rather early in life. I was in class six, and then mm, uh, it was violent. So it was not just a sense of othering, but it's, it's a violent othering that happened out there. I left the entire by region, and by region I mean to say I only knew Shillong and I only knew Guwahati. I actually did not even know 
Dibruger. I did not even know uh, Dhubri or I did not even know Jayantia Hills. Yeah. So m- m- when we say we are from that place, we actually ha- have grown up in one small little town or city. Uh, beyond that, we have not gone. I'm not, I don't know what Nagaland looks like, what Manipur looks like, what Arunachal Pradesh looks like, nothing. And then uh, just accidentally at some point of time, in I from Delhi, I just go back there for six months actually. And uh, the six months gets extended into 10 years uh, because the situation out there was so explosive that I just didn't have the, the heart to be able to leave that uh, situation. So when I am reporting that kind of a violence, then I think there, is, there, isn't, a, there isn't a problem because you are moving from, it's episodic. And uh, you know, the episode is so, so volcanic that you know, it really my identity doesn't really matter out there because the, 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 the destitution, the misery, the, the, uh, the, the real pathos of the situation is so heightened that you, know, you are not a player or a participant there. The problem is that when you are doing other kinds of stories, then suddenly your identity of being the other becomes comes to play if the sto- if the report is not favorable to the local people. <laughs> so it was it was a very straightforward relationship that I had. That if the story is favorable, then I'm one of them. If the story is not favorable, then I am the other. And I had to deal with that. You know, one thing that um, I'm reminded of is a very painful image of uh, Felani Khatun shot and hung across a barbed wire separating India and Bangladesh, which represents in so many ways how the physical restrictions of these boundaries create violence. And at the same time, there is a continuous flow of resources, labor, and money across these these spaces. In light of these kind of violent moments that we are all too familiar when it comes to the borderland and uh, these militarized borders in particular, what can you tell our young listeners about the ethics of journalism when covering these kinds of spaces uh, or reporting on, on frontiers and borderlands? I think the ethics of uh, covering frontiers and borderlands um, is fundamentally the same as covering any other story, but frontiers and borderlands uh, and conflict areas, the biggest casualty is truth. Um, And as journalists, particularly young journalists or even even mature journalists, there has been, um, and without hesitation I can tell you, there has been, I have witnessed a lot of journalists succumbing to the temptation of um, actually making up stories, creating stories, okay, because um, those are the stories that they can easily put out, put on air. Uh, you know, the, the regular story of a frontier land is rather tedious, humdrum. Nothing much happens there, okay. Um, a bomb doesn't really explode every day in a conflict zone. What do you do the rest of the time? You're falling off the map in any way. So you are trying to now get eyeballs how do you get eyeballs to make things more dramatic to make things more appealing and uh, i remember this little uh, anecdote of me one of the my first when i went back when i went i don't say back actually when i went because i grew up in shillong i did not know the region so i went out there and i traveled extensively you know thanks to my organization and 
the situation uh, at that time in all the states that took me from you know the Tripura border to so it's from one Chinese border uh, at Nathula to the other Chinese border at Tawang. Mm. So I mean you know it, it, so I moved between uh, you know across you know hills and valleys and rivers and you know towns and cities and villages. Uh, living with the communities, uh, traveling with the communities, so something that I wouldn't have done, I wouldn't have had a. So it's not like you know anyone from the northeast also understands the region, uh, because they don't have the um, uh, luxury or even the interest or inclination of traveling around it. So it's 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 a it's a very, it's easy to say it's a complex region. Every region is complex. Every history is complex. I don't think so. There's nothing anything anything. Uh, uh, you know, unique about which not unique about any any particular place. You know, every place is unique, and every history is unique. Every every person is unique. But so I was I was very close to the Burma uh, border, um, sorry, the Bhutan border, and um, I was going down Kokrajhar. Kokrajhar was a hotbed of alpha te you know terrorists. Uh, my camera person and my driver, because I was new there, they said that see you need to return early before sunset, before sundown, they call it, because this is a, you know, this area is really bad. The roads are terrible and this was a hotbed and, you know, you would get ambushed. And I said, but we are so close to the Bhutan border. Um, why can't we go there two kilometers? The driver said, no, even two kilometers is not something that we can afford. We have to really return from here. So I said, okay, let me do a piece to camera from here. And my camera person said that, okay, uh, just, I, I did my piece to camera. He said, no, 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 let's do a retake. Say that you're on Bhutan border. I said, but I'm not on Bhutan border. He says, but it doesn't matter. It looked like it's Bhutan border. <laughs> so, so covering, <laughs> and I know of our celebrity journalist who once uh, was reporting from Kirana sector in Jammu and Kashmir uh, till... Because what do you see, Kirana sector? It's just at night, you put a light on the face and there is a shrub behind, <laughs> right? There's nothing else. Till a friend of mine from the Srinagar Army headquarters said that uh, he was sitting and having a drink with that journalist. So, <laughs> so right. and th these stories are bound. Mm -hmm. So I think the ethics is to be able to not succumb to that temptation and just do whatever it is, however mundane the story is. Phelani is a character in my one of my books. Yes. And uh, I, I think, you know, it's just the most chilling, um, you know, incident that kind of should be haunting all of us, you know, a girl wearing that uh, blue dupatta, I think, and you know, hanging out there. And the other ethical thing, since you mentioned Pilani, is that if someone is going to just photograph a girl hanging for five hours, bleeding to death, I mean, I don't understand uh, the similar thing of that. Adivasi girl in, in, in Guwahati who was stripped naked and she was running and then people were taking pictures and by evening I had actually uh, uh, photographs in my inbox uh, which people wanted to buy um, you know and I though there was a tea uh, shop owner who actually opened his clothes and clothed her but I wondered that the entire stretch of the VIP area no one had the sense of taking her uh, into their ho homes or giving her a piece of cloth or the journalists who were there. I wasn't. I had sprained my ankle. I was sitting in my office actually when this entire uh, incident happened. So I didn't get to cover but I got banned uh, for the next six months in Guwahati when we aired the story uh, feeding into the, your previous question because I was seen as one amongst them who sh shamed the people. So therefore I deserved to be banned. 
Wow, you've given us a lot to think about, Professor. Thank you so much for coming in today to the studio. And I hope we can continue these conversations outside the studio as well. Thank you. Thank you Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by Siddharth Pillay and Tushar Singh, students of Jindal School of Journalism and Communication. The podcast series is an initiative of the Center for Research in History in collaboration with JSJC Radio at OP Jindal Global University.